Chapter 12. Dawn Brought the Sun A high concrete wall surrounded the subdivision, and armored guards stood outside the gate. Sam came to a stop by the guard's window. The man leaned out the window and waited for Sam to speak. Mr. Oliver Pauly requested that we pay him a visit, Sam told the guard, not sure what else to say. He passed the referral slip to him. It was a two-inch strip of paper cut from the visitor's book at Temple Square in Utah. Mr. Pauly had signed it, indicating he would be glad to have a visit from a representative of the church. The guard disappeared inside for several minutes. When he leaned back out the window, the big iron gate started to swing open. Sam felt like he was in Alice in Wonderland. The guard handed him back the slip and said, Number 224, move forward. They drove past <clears throat> buildings that were more like palaces than normal homes. It took them a while to find 224, yet they did not mind slowly driving past all the beautiful houses. Every one of them was newer and more beautiful than the mission home. <clears throat> Deep within the subdivision, they found another large fence and gate. Um, on one of the massive gate towers was 224. The gate was open, so they drove in. They followed the narrow road, lined with flowering shrubs and immaculately sculpted uh, flowering bushes and immaculately sculpted shrubs, until the road forked. A small sign directed all deliveries to the left. Sam took the right fork. Almost immediately, the road grew wider, with a large stone wall on either side. The wall was of gray stone designed to look like the castle wall with regularly spaced turrets. <clears throat> turrets. I don't... I can't remember which one's which. <laughs> Flowers grew from the turrets. When they spotted the house a second later, it was like driving into another world. It was, in fact, a true castle, complete with a drawbridge and moat. They stared open-mouthed as they rounded a bubbling fountain before the huge front door. Everywhere they looked, the gardens and trees were immaculate. They could see an Olympic-sized swimming pool far to the right. Also decorated castle-like, a small figure, obviously female, lounged on the chase beside the pool. The only difference between the castle and a real one was that everything here was smaller, yet it was proportionately correct. <clears throat> Given the appearance of being much larger than it actually was, it was a carefully crafted optical illusion. The two-story walls appeared to be four stories tall, with small windows cut into the walls to complete the illusion. They walked across the drawbridge over the moat filled with goldfish and flowers and knocked on the massive door. No one appeared. They were just about to give up and leave when the door heard, when they heard a bolt click back. The heavy door opened with an appropriate groan to reveal a young woman standing in the shadows. She had apparently been the girl by the pool, for she wore nothing but a bikini and a large towel draped over one shoulder. She stared at them with a curious expression. Hello, she said, more of a question than a welcome. Elder Hall recovered first. Good afternoon. I'm Elder Hall and this is Elder Mahoy. We were asked to visit Mr. Oliver Polly. He visited Temple Square in Salt Lake City, Utah, and requested that we visit him. Oh yes, the girl responded happily, pulling the door open wider and motioning them to come in. I was the one with him. She, We had a wonderful time and loved the temple. She directed them to a large couch before the fireplace, taller than Sam's head and twice as wide. Would you excuse me? I need to put something on. I was just by the pool. I'll be right back. She smiled apologetically and disappeared in, <clears throat> up the circular stairs in the foyer. Both elders walked slowly around the room, looking for the, looking at the unusual decor. The room, while very large, felt like it was almost too small. The illusion of the building gave the feeling of a huge castle. Now they were in a room that should have been <clears throat> vast to complete the illusion, yet it was not much more than a simple, 
no, just more than a large living room. It was still impressive. The room was two stories high with two slotted windows. The wall to their left held a huge tapestry that covered the entire wall from side to side and nearly to the ceiling. All around the room, near the ceiling, were rows of animal trophies. There were lions and bears, water buffaloes, rhinoceros, zebra, and a host of others. Medieval suits of armor with swords and spears stood in all four corners of the room. The opposite wall held a collection of massive portraits. The figures all wore the ornate clothing of medieval times, but the dates on the portraits were more recent. They had barely begun discovering all the strange trappings of the room when the girl returned. She had put <clears throat> pulled on a silken robe over her bathing suit. In reality, the robe didn't did little to cover her and only added to her beauty. Sam had the fleeting, unmissionary-like thought that she looked stunning as she came down the large staircase. But by the way she hopped down the stair two at a time, he seriously doubted he was trying to impress them. She was trying to impress them. My name is Don Polly, she said breathlessly, offering Sam a slender hand. Don D O N Sam asked, taking her hand. It felt warm and delicate, almost as if it might break in her hand roughly. Don, she repeated, as the rising of the sun. She pronounced her name by prolonging the vowel sound. It came out down when she spoke it and sounded ex <laughs> it sounded exotic and magical. Not like what I just did. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Don. Pleasure to meet you. She smiled at him and graciously shook Elder Hall's hand. She motioned for them to sit and took a large chair by the fireplace. She crossed her legs and the robe, robe slid open, leaving very little to the imagination. Look at the floor, Sam whispered to his companion, whose eyes were having a hard time staying in his head. Elder Hall nodded and obediently looked at the floor with an obvious effort. <clears throat> Sam felt as if the huge couch was swallowing him. He had never sat in a chair with such massive cushions. Since it was Elder Hall's day, he resumed, still looking at the floor. Dawn, as we said earlier, we are from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're glad you enjoyed your visit at Temple Square. Your father indicated that he would like a visit from us, so we are here. Do you chaps realize that we visited Temple Square over two years ago? I'm sorry, Elder Hall replied, glancing at her face and then back to the floor. They don't date our paperwork. This far from Utah, it sometimes takes a long time to follow through. That's fine. It's actually sweet that you remembered after all this time. Daddy will like that, but he isn't home. He usually gets home about six o'clock. <clears throat> she glanced at a huge grandfather clock to her left. It read a little before three. I wouldn't want him to miss meeting you. He was very impressed and has been anxious to have someone call from the church. If you like, you can join me in the pool. We have lots of bathing suits. That would be a fun way to spend the next few hours. Daddy usually comes home and takes a dip anyway. It would be perfect. Actually, Elder Hall explained, as missionaries, swimming with attractive young women is one of the things we aren't supposed to do. Appealing as your invitation is, I hope you will forgive us if we decline. He handled it so smoothly that Sam was so proud of him. She let her bottom lip slip forward in a pout and then smiled at him. I should have guessed as much. Of course you can't. I mean no disrespect. Well, then the best I can do is invite you back at seven. He will be pleased to receive you then. She stood graciously, gracefully and adjusted the gosmere robe around her. Sam had to look away to keep his eyes off her body. He felt ashamed that he had no more self-control than that. Once back in the car, they both wiped sweat from their brows and not from the heat. That was as close as I want to get to being tempted by a beautiful woman, Elder, Kim said with a sigh. And she wasn't even trying to tempt us. Man, I need a three-day fast. 
Sam laughed and nodded agreement. He had liked the young lady, but sincerely hoped for their sakes that she had more in their wardrobe than the bikini and the silk robe. Seven o'clock found them again knocking on the huge door. This time, a butler answered the door. He was dressed in a butler's uniform and invited them in with a sweeping bow. He led them past the big living room and into the study. <clears throat> the master will join you shortly, he said matter-of-factly and closed the double sliding doors. The study walls were lined with three sides of bookshelves. It reminded him of the study in the mission home. Like in the mission home, many of the books were old and probably very valuable. This room was also tall, with the bookshelves extending far higher than any person could reach. Above the shelves, a silent zoo of smaller trophies stared at them, with glassy eyes. One shelf held birds, some with their wings fully extended. Sam noted that they were all birds of prey. Another wall held a fine collection of small cats. He saw several that reminded him of the American bobcat. While the collection was impressive, the carnage made him feel slightly uncomfortable. A lot of animals had died to decorate these walls. The elders were so intent on the trophies that neither of them heard the study doors open. It's an impressive collection, isn't it? A voice said behind them. They both <clears throat> turned to see a middle-aged man dressed in a red smoking jacket and silk pants. He held a pipe in his teeth. He was slender and obviously athletic, with sandy hair and a slim mustache. His eyes were a pale blue. He smiled and shook their hands. When he spoke, his accent was heavily British. Oh, good, an accent I can do. <laughs> it completed the impression with a great hunter. Damn decent of you to finally look me up after all this time, he said. Please take a seat. They pushed plush chairs toward the desk and sat. He took a seat behind his, the desk. Don told me you're from the Mormons. Yes, sir. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Elder Hall replied. He nodded and puffed a cloud of blue <clears throat> smoke that rose slowly toward the ceiling. The pipe had a sweet, fruity smell that Sam did not find objectionable. It smelled more like fruit and roses than tobacco. As you know, Don and I visited there two years ago. Very impressive and most enjoyable. We went to every little performance and attended every tour. Had a splendid time. Had you come the day I returned to Africa, I probably would have joined a church without much ado. As it is, I've kind of lost interest. Don't want to put you two lads off your feet, but I'm not interested in discussing religion. I hope that doesn't offend you. I know you've traveled a damn long way to visit me. Terribly sorry and all. Elder Hall straightened in his chair. Mr. Polly, we live here in South Africa. We didn't travel from America for the sole purpose of visiting you. So you don't owe us an apology. We are here on a mission from the church, and we'll be in your country for two years. <clears throat> Quite right, of course. Much the better than splendid that I haven't put you out as much as I had originally thought. Still, I have to say I'm anxiously invited, awaited your coming for several months. Perhaps I'll go back some day, and that will rekindle the spark. At that moment, Don entered the study carrying a tray of silver with four teacups. This time, she was wearing a soft blue dress that extended from under her chin to her ankles and left everything to the imagination. In many ways, it made her even more beautiful. For the first time, Sam noted how finely chiseled her face was. <clears throat> she had her hair done up in soft ringlets. She could have walked from the room and attended any formal ball. Ah, oh, there you are, Don. Thank you, my dear. Very thoughtful of you. Elders? Would you care for a red bush tea? He asked, asking in the the usual asking the usual English name for Roybos tea. Don you say Don says you can drink it. Not real tea or coffee though, I understand, eh? They nodded and accept the tea she handed them after offering them cream and sugar. She took a seat near Sam and sipped her own tea. 
Don, Mr. Polly continued, I was just telling these lads that I'm no longer king to become Mormon. What about you, dear? Do you still want to listen to these chaps? He said in all so calmly that it sounded as if there was no discussion. <clears throat> as if they were discussing whether to have one lump of sugar or two. Daddy, you were the one who was so enthusiastic back then. I'm surprised you've lost it. You have often talked about it. To be honest, I've anticipated these missionaries coming only because of your interest. But now that you said no, you're no longer interested, she said, pausing. Sam could feel the rejection hovering in the air. He silently braced himself. He had been sent away so many times that another rejection would just be that another rejection. He had long ago overcome the sense of personal failure at each refusal. Still, his heart ached as <clears throat> each of Father's children turned away from their opportunity to know him better. He looked into Don's eyes and saw more than a lovely woman. He saw a precious, spiritually significant daughter of Heavenly Father, and he prayed her heart would feel the need as keenly as he did. She reciprocated his gaze, then looked back at her father. I think I want to know more. Would that be okay, Daddy? Sure, Maria. You check it out. If it's really good, let me know, and maybe I'll come listen in. He said, blowing a blue smoke of a cloud of smoke and leaning back in his chair. He suddenly stood up. I'm going for a dip in the pool. You three carry on without me. Cheerio, he said, and left the room. They taught Dawn the first discussion, which she enjoyed. It was a delight to teach her, since she was sweet and unassuming and believing. Her questions, while deep, were to explore the truth, not to challenge or dispute. As they came to know her, they learned more about the Polly family and their amazing house. The castle had been built by her grandfather and passed on to his son, Don's father. The grandfather had made a great deal of money as a newspaper publisher. He loved castles and could afford to make his dream home look like one. The castle was, in fact, much larger than it appeared. There were over 100 rooms, 25 of which were bedrooms. There, were, there was a six-car garage, two pools, two tennis courts, and an indoor squash court. Four formal living rooms, two libraries, two kitchens, four dining rooms, several game rooms, and a host of other rooms. Since her mother's death, they had closed off most of the huge building and occupied only a small portion of the whole. One evening, after a third discussion on impulse, Don stood up and walked to the bookshelves. Daddy doesn't like me showing these things to people. I only found this one a few weeks ago while cleaning. She pulled down a piece of trim near the third row of books. A latch clicked in the bookshelf silently swung inward. She motioned for them to follow. Dawn flipped on the light switch, and they found themselves in an arrow completed hallway. <clears throat> carpeted? Oh, carpeted. <laughs> Not completed, carpeted hallway. The walls were expensive wood, and the carpeting a plush green. Though coated with dust, a few feet away, the hallway came to a T. She led them to the right, and they soon appeared, uh, approached a stairway. This stairway rises in a cavity below the stairs in the foyer. It goes up and leads to secret openings in most of the bedrooms upstairs. She walked past the stairs to a blank wall. She placed the palm of her hand on the panel and slid it to the left. Beyond was a dark piece of glass. Sam stepped forward and moved closer to the glass. He could see a darkened room beyond and immediately recognized it as the main living room. They were looking through a large mirror on the wall. Don slid the panel closed and led them past the hall they had just entered, which opened more panels to their view. Many of these panels open to allow you to see into other rooms. Some of them open into secret doors. I spent most of my childhood exploring these passageways. I know more about them than Daddy. He didn't seem to be too interested. I can get from one of the castle to the other without stepping out of these secret hallways. 
By now, she was walking so quickly that the elders had to practically run to keep up. I have found several rooms that have no other entrance than by these halls. One of them has a lot of guns and things. Several of the doors are thick and locked. I think Grandpa was afraid someone would discover these secret passages, so he locked even some of them as secret doors. I don't know who has the key, or if anyone does. She turned left and then right and stopped by a panel. She pushed left and slid it open. A gust of frigid air rushed through the opening. She chuckled when the elder seemed startled. She stepped through and flipped on the light. She was standing in a cooler. Stainless steel shelves filled with food surrounded her. They followed her through. The secret door slid closed on its own. She pushed open the heavy door to a cooler, and they stepped into a huge kitchen. I sometimes go this way to get a midnight snack, she confessed sheepishly, as she led them to the counter that had a plate under a dome crystal cover. <clears throat> she lifted the cover to reveal three huge cinnamon rolls. The prize at the end of the maze, she said happily, and carefully lifted one of the roll onto a china plate. She handed it to Sam and another to Elder Hall, and then led them to the small dining area, where they talked and laughed as they ate the sticky sweet rolls. Sam found Don's father intriguing. Oliver Polly was 47 years old and a diamond cutter by profession. One evening, instead of teaching Don immediately, they listened to him describe his line of work. I'm a cutter, he explained, and without being presumptuous, I'm one of the best. I have a type of spiritual connection with the stones, which you chaps might understand. I can feel their inner beauty and instinctively know how to cut them. However, I haven't cut a stone in years. I presently manage a cutting house for Goldstein. Goldstein Myers. I direct the other cutters on how to find the magic in each stone. Wow, Elder Hall exclaimed. It must pay really well. In fact, Oliver replied, drawing deeply on his pipe, I work for nothing. How can that be? Sam asked. Come on, Daddy, tell them the whole thing, Don urged, her voice childlike. He laughed. When they offered me the position, they gave me two options. One was a handsome salary. The other was a way to pick any stone they went through their shop at no cost. No, at their cost. The only limitation is that I cannot sell any stones in this country. I choose the latter. It has proven to be a wise decision. But if you can't sell diamonds in this country, how do you make a living? Elder Hall asked. Twice a year, I take two or three of my favorites, mount them in jewelry, and Don and I go on vacation. First, we go to England, where we sell the stones for a handsome profit. Since they are mounted in jewelry, there is no import duty. We deposit the proceeds from the sale in a Swiss bank and head off to some new exotic destination for a couple of weeks. Wow, that's amazing, Sam said. It makes me wonder why more people don't do it. Few people can buy stones at the cutter's cost. The only reason they let me is that I make them millions of rand each year. They know I can get a similar or better deal anywhere I go. Few people have my affinity for the stones, you see. Amazing, Sam said again. As a matter of fact, Oliver continued, leaning forward as if it, this were specifically important, I am looking for people to do the traveling for me. Anyone with an American passport would be perfect. If I trusted them, we could do some lucrative business. I have a South African passport, and if I go more than twice a year, the customs law allow them to tax my stones, whether they are mounted in jewelry or not. They wouldn't pay any attention to a person with an American passport. What are you getting at, Elder at Hall asked, a suspicious tone in his voice. I'm a businessman, and this is a business proposal. It has nothing to do with your teaching, Don, or with your mission. Here's the deal, lad. After your mission, you go home and raise $10,000. Come back to me, and I will sell you $50,000 worth of diamonds, already mounted in jewelry. I'll introduce you to my buyers in England, and they will help you set up a Swiss account and transfer the money for you. 
You'll return home with $40,000 in your hands. I make 5000 on each transaction. I have enough buyers that you could make the trip once a month and never go the same place twice. He stopped to exhale another curl of blue smoke. I have several people doing this already. They make their entire living doing it, and they live well. It works to everyone's advantage. You could make nearly half a million a year and travel all over the globe. I don't mean this to be an insulting question, Elder Hall says, but is it legal? Certainly. It's almost common practice. I've had several international lawyers check the various customs and import laws, and they've all concluded that it's perfectly legal. You are welcome to read the letter, so stating if you wish. Elder Hall could not sleep that night, thinking about diamonds. Mr. Polly's proposal was indeed intriguing, and he considered it over and over, and it was still on Kim's mind when they returned three days later to teach Don. And he had some more questions to ask. However, Don was home alone. I'm so sorry, she said as she opened the door, but I have an unexpected matter I need to attend to. A neighbor has lost their youngest son in a tragic accident. He was killed while playing soccer at school, of all things. Broke his neck. She sighed and stepped out onto the front porch. They are having a gathering of friends at their home, and I really need to go. They have been friends for years. I hope you'll understand. They did understand and assured her it was fine. They made another appointment for the following day and were climbing into their car when she walked toward them and a smile on her face. I just thought of something. Why don't you come with me? They know I'm studying with the Mormon elders, and they were supportive of the idea. It might be nice to have you come. What do you think? Afterward, if you still have time, we could do our discussion. They exchanged glances and said in unison, Sounds good. She smiled and turned away. She trotted several steps toward the garage and suddenly stopped. Do you chaps want to ride with me? Daddy said I could take the Jaguar. I'm a good driver and I don't speed. She pronounced it Jaguar. Jaguar. I think. I don't know how that's supposed to be. They watched as the third garage door opened smoothly and the roar of the engine filled the yard. A sleek red Jaguar convertible backed out of the lane. Sam noticed it was an XKE. It had a V12 engine and looked as if it were faster than a bat out of a hot place. <laughs> Sam climbed into the passenger seat and Elder Hall squeezed into the tiny space behind <clears throat> that passed for the, a back seat. <clears throat> Sam gripped the door as she shoved it into gear. She touched the gas and the car jolted forward, belching smoke and a roar of burning rubber. Oops! She said and gave him an apologetic look. I always forget how powerful this thing is. She started again, this time rolling smoothly down the lane. When she reached the road, she carefully powered onto the road. Even driven conservatively, the mighty roadster was a thrill. Sam felt his heart pounding as Dawn touched the gas, and it leaped down the road. She took them onto, on a short but dizzying journey deeper into the subdivision. Every home they passed was a palace. Finally, they pulled up... <clears throat> to a huge English Tudor-style home. She stopped on the curb and killed the engine. There was nearly a dozen other vehicles parked nearby. Sam counted four Rolls-Royces and two Cadillacs. A butler met them at the door and ushered them into the living room. It was palatial in size, with two huge gold and crystal chandeliers at opposite ends of the high ceiling. At the far end of the room, a couple stood side by side, their faces gripped with grief. They tried to entertain their guests, but every few minutes, one of them would have to turn away. <clears throat> Sam watched as the mother turned away from the crowd, and her shoulders shook with silent sobs. He was transported back to the tragic day following Jimmy's accident, and it was as if he were watching his own parents grieve again. His heart felt as if it would break. Without waiting for an invitation, he walked directly toward them. He was only vaguely aware of Elder Hall following in his wake through the crowded room. 
Dawn arrived at his side, and after embracing her friends, she turned and introduced Sam and Elder Hall to their left. A picture of the young, handsome boy was displayed on the grand piano. It was surrounded by cut flowers. Mr. and Mr. Feinstein, this is my friend of mine, Elder Mahoy, Don said, and Sam and Elder Hall shook the couple's hands. The father was a short, balding man in his late forties with sandy blonde hair and a Roman-style beard. He shook Sam's hand without enthusiasm and almost immediately looked back at the photo on the piano. Mrs. Feinstein grabbed Sam's hand and looked into his eyes. She was somewhat younger than her husband and possessed the most penetrating ice-blue eyes Sam had ever seen. A twin course of tears spilled down her cheeks, and he suppressed an urge to take her into his arms to comfort her. Somehow, she sensed his concern and smiled wanly. Wanly? Wanly. <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard of that word. A powerful urge to give them something swept over Sam, and he pondered what else he possessed that might ease their pain. He had no flowers, no sympathy card, no poetry, no inspiring thoughts. He glanced at the p piano and realized he did possess something. The music that endlessly played in his mind was there, sweet, flowing, and comforting. He stepped back, and Mrs. Feinstein released her grasp. He nodded toward the piano. May I? he asked. Her eyes brightened, and she nodded, taking a, big, a step toward the big black piano. Sam sat and raised the lid. It was a, a nabe piano, considered by many to be the finest piano in the world. Made in America, they routinely sold in Africa for sums exceeding $50,000. He played a brief chord and found it perfectly tuned. The music was there waiting in his heart, but something was missing. He wanted to give them something permanent, more lasting than just music that evaporates into memory, when the last note is played. Do you have a tape recorder? he asked. Mr. Feinstein nodded at a servant who was standing near the arched hallway. The servant disappeared, then came back a few minutes later, rolling <clears throat> in a cart containing a, a large reel-to-reel -reel recorder. He placed a microphone on top of the piano and aimed another at Sam as if expected him to sing. Instead, Sam picked up the mic and handed it to Mr. Fe Mrs. Feinstein. She took it hesitantly. The servant clicked on the big recorder and the reels moved ahead slowly. Mrs. Feinstein, what's your son's name? Lawson, she said hesitantly. Lawson Levy Feinstein, Jr. Her voice was filled with pride, which wilted as she, soon as she, as the words escaped her lips. Tell me about Lawson. Start with his age and tell me special things about him, what he liked, the things he loved doing, all of his favorite things, and what made you love him most. When I start playing, I'd like you to keep talking. Speak up so I can hear you. Whatever comes to mind, just say it, okay? She looked a bit self-conscious, but slowly began to speak. Lawson was twelve. I guess his favorite thing in the world was camping. We all loved to camp. We have this favorite place where there is a small waterfall and a brook with cold, clear water. <clears throat> Sam could almost see the waterfall, and the music made it as happily music made as it happily tumbled over the rocks. He began to play light and happy, spilling and rolling. His fingers caressed the keys, and the music began became a giggling waterfall on a warm summer day. Mrs. Feinstein stopped, momentarily mesmerized by the music, and Sam nodded her to go on. I believe it was by that stream that his father first showed him how to kick a soccer ball. He was eight years old and took to it immediately. We played all afternoon. We ran and laughed and kicked that ball until we were all so weary and happy that we could hardly walk. Sam closed his eyes and the ball flew through the music in long, intricate runs and bounced happily from person to person. 
It was almost dark, and my husband kicked the ball one last time. Lawson missed it, and the ball rolled into the stream. We tried to catch it, but it was quickly gone into the dark. She paused, remembering. And if she were there once again, Lawson cried. The music tumbled, turned minor, and rumbled like thunder, but then just as suddenly became happy again. Besides camping and soccer, I think he loved Mickey Mouse the most. I'll never forget his first Mickey Mouse cartoon we took him to. He had to stay and watch it three times. She laughed as the music played M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Everyone in the room chuckled and clasped their hands. His favorite movie oh his favorite movie was Doctor Shivago, which surprised me at the time because it was such an adult movie, but he loved it every especially the part where they meet again after so many years in that mansion filled with ice and snow. I remember him watching him cry as he thought of the sadness and joy. He was an unusually mature child, I think. The music became dark days of uh, the music became the dark days of the Russian Revolution, and the bittersweet love story of Dr. Shivago rolled majestically from the piano. I think the thing I will miss most, his father said, now standing close, uh, facing his wife, both of their hands on the microphone that was now forgotten, is his laughter. It was so alive and so happy. He was a bright star, a flash of sunlight in my life. Every time I saw him, he smiled at me. Even when he was angry with me for punishing him or missing a soccer game, I can't remember one time that he didn't smile. Yes, his wife agreed. That was our son. I wish I knew where he is, if he's happy, if he still loves soccer. Her voice trailed off in the silence. The music continued for almost a full minute, aching, wondering, weeping, and seeking answers. Let me share something with you, Sam said. The Feinstein started and looked at him, as if seeing him for the first time. She nodded, and after a thought, set the microphone back on the piano. I want to tell you what my heart tells me, what my faith tells me. As he spoke, the music quietly turned to I am a child of God. The music flowed magically from Sam's soul, as if inseparably connected to his words. I believe we are children of a loving Father in Heaven, all of us. Since we are children of an eternal being, we also possess the seeds of eternity within us. As tragic as dying seems, it is not an end, but a beginning. We leave this life and enter in the next, still the same person, but freed from the limitations of mortality. It is my firm conviction that Lawson still lives as a spirit in the presence of God. It is my great joy to have complete faith in the truth that you will one day hold your son in your arms again. Until then, we endure this brief separation we call death with faith in God. He turned back to the piano and finished the song with a reverent and beautiful flourish. He lifted his hands and quite unexpectedly a voice carried across the room. It was a man's voice, high and melodious. The voice carried across the room as if from another world, rich and pure. It was as if an angel had come to add his testimony to Sam's. The crowd parted once again and a man walked forward singing, I am a child of God. He sang with reverent passion, pressing both fists to his chest, raising his chin as if singing directly to God. His eyes glistened as he stopped beside the piano. Sam began once again playing, not the melody, but an intricate harmony. His fingers did a ballet on the keys as the stranger's voice penetrated every soul. The singer knew all three verses, and he sang them as if they were the final act of his life. Sam's heart soared and tears ran down his cheeks. For him, nothing now existed but the music and the words he had known since childhood. I am a child of God, and he has sent me here. 
He has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. I am a child of God, and so my needs are great. Help me to understand his will before it grows too late. I am a child of God. Rich blessings are in store. If I but learn to do his will, I'll live with him once more. Lead me. Guide me. Walk beside me. Help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. The music ceased. The tape recorder clicked off, and Sam slowly closed the lid on the piano. He stood up, and the Lawson's mother embraced him and held him as she laughed and wept on his shoulder. Thank you, she said quietly in his ear. I will treasure long this moment and the memories you have created for us. I did not realize until now that I have known in my heart that Lawson is still alive somewhere, somehow. We are Jewish by descent, although we are not religious, yet I believe what you have said to be true. She wiped the tears from her cheeks, then glanced back at her husband, who nodded in agreement. Would you come back and teach us what the words of that song mean? Come back and teach me why, against logic and hope, I still believe that Lawson lives. Sam nodded at her and smiled them, at them both. She released Sam. New tears of joy and relief streamed from her eyes. She stepped back and she swept into an embrace by dawn. Mr. Feinstein took Sam's hand in both of his. Thank you, he mouthed, no sound coming from his lips. His purpose done, Sam walked quite quickly to the door and out into the hot afternoon. He was sitting in the passenger seat of the Jaguar, waiting for dawn, when the stranger with a beautiful voice appeared outside the house. He caught sight of Sam and walked directly toward the car. Sam opened the door to greet him. Elder, the man said, taking Sam's hand. I am Sir Philip de Vries. I don't know if he's British, but <laughs> he's going to be British for now. <laughs> I doubt you know me, but I sing opera with the South African Operatic Company. It may surprise you that I know that I was once a member of your Mormon church, although I must confess, I have not returned to it in twenty years. I have long known that simple song, I am a child of God, in every word of it. When you started to play it, I was so deeply touched that the words literally burst from me. I hope you'll forgive me as I, if I upstaged you. I didn't mean to. Sham shook his head. I thought not, the man continued, a small smile softening his face. Even though I have stayed away from the church, that song still speaks to me as a testimony of the eternal nature of the soul. Today, as I sang it, my heart again received a sweet witness of the truthfulness of those words. I felt as if I were to see unto heaven a glimpse of endless joy God ordains for those who return to him with unstained hands. He paused. Something was on his mind, and he was searching for words that seemed hidden to him. He continued in a voice soft with emotion. I am intimately familiar with the performing arts and persons of vast talent, yet I must say, my young friend, that your music is superior to all of them. Not because you possess a greater talent, indeed almost all of my acquaintances could perform circles around you. No, it is because of the purity of your soul you believe the message of your music with all your heart. For this reason your music is truly divine. His voice faltered and he grasped Pam's hand again. Thank you, Elder Sam, for showing me the music the angels sing. Thank you for rekindling the bright flame of truth in my soul again. I will return to those truths I had forgotten for so long. Yes, I will return to God and his restored church. Beginning this very moment, my soul truly rejoices. So saying, he released Sam's hand and quickly departed. Sam stood on the pavement in stunned silence and bowed his head in joy. That evening, as they studied the scriptures before going to bed, they were surprised by a knock on their door. Sam straightened his tie and answered the knock. Two uniformed officers stood before him. 
A moment of panic swept over him as the grim-faced officers handed him an envelope. His panic vanished as he read Elder Sam in flowing script. The envelope bore the return address of the regional prosecutor. The letter inside was in Sister Vandekirk's flowing script. My dearest Elder Sam Mahoy, it has come to our pleasant attention that you are now stationed in Durban, Natal. Since Brother Vandekirk won the prosecutorship, we have purchased a new home in Pretoria to be near the seat of government. However, we spend three months each year in Durban. We are presently here and anxious to meet you once again. Some good friends want missionary discussions, and we hoped you would teach them. We know they are out of town, out of your teaching area, so all the above is just a ploy to see you again. We formally invite you, your companion, and all your fellow missionaries in your area to join us for dinner this Friday evening. Be sure to bring everyone in a hearty appetite. If you are able, please send word with the gentleman who delivered this letter. They will pick you up at 6 p.m. that evening, if you agree. Until then, we leave our love, brother and sister Vanderkirk. Six o'clock Friday evening found Sam's small room crammed with eight elders. When their car arrived, it was a stretch limousine into which they all comfortably fit. The Vanderkirk's home was spread out over the hill near the coast. Sam's heart pounded in his chest as they drove up the cobblestone drive. Sister Vanderkirk flung open the door and ran to the car as it pulled up. As soon as Sam emerged, she swept him into her arms and kissed both of his cheeks, releasing him only after the other missionaries cleared their throats. Well, Elder Hall said under his breath, the voice alive with humor, I'll bet that greeting was against mission rules. <laughs> she heard and turned towards him. I have vast experience getting rules changed. If need be, young man, we'll change this one. It must be a stupid rule anyway. <laughs> she laughed at her own humor and laced an arm through Sam's. She led him into the large foyer of her new home. She explained that it was owned by the government. She set aside for the use of government officials. It seemed as if no expense had been spared. She led them from room to room, letting them ooh and awe at the lavish furnishings and grand design. Our home in Pretoria is much smaller. You would be proud, Elder Sam, she said happily. Since joining the church, our desire for opulence has diminished to zero. Our home is just adequate. It's kind of embarrassing to live in this great home, but we suffer along as best as we can. That brought a laugh from everyone, including her. However, she was serious. She led them to a huge dining room that held a table adequate for seating as many as 40 guests. The ceiling was arched and with open woodwork of great skill and beauty. Along one side, near the ceiling, were flags from various cities. Along the opposite side were flags of the nations. The table was spread with a single white cloth and set with gold tableware. She showed them to their places and indicated a place for Sam near the end. She sat on the end, leaving a vacant seat beside her for her husband. A door closed, and Brother Vandekirk scurried into the room. Sam stood and embraced him. He had been detained, but was finally there. A servant took his briefcase and coat, and they both sat down. Brother Vandekirk asked Sam to pray. The meal began with half an avocado stuffed with chilled shrimp. It was the size of an ostrich egg, sweet and smooth. The shrimp was in a light cocktail sauce and was the finest Sam had ever tasted. Sam, or Sister Vandekirk urged them to only sample each dish. The combination of avocado and shrimp was unique and different, or, or difficult to just sample. Sam allowed himself to slowly savor the exotic flavors. Next came a soup made of water buffalo and black beans. The taste of the soup was so complete that it awakened taste buds never before used. Next came a fruit salad in half a pineapple shell. It was made entirely of kiwi, grapes, pineapple bits, and narki. The narki was a large grape-like fruit with a simple pip removed, a single pip removed. The meat immediately around which the narki seed 
was so bitter that no human could eat it. Once the bitter fruit was removed, there was no sweeter fruit than the narki. The effect was so exotic and sweet that it should have been a dessert. Following the salad came a plate with a single Lorenzo Marx prawn upon it. The large prawn was the size of a lobster. The missionaries had never seen a shrimp so large or ugly. Some of them just stared, their eyes growing large at the idea of eating such a grotesque monstrosity. Sister Carlson lifted hers and demonstrated how to open the shell and get the sweet meat within. After some encouragement, the missionaries gamely pried, twisted, and poked until they succeeded. The meat was rich beyond belief. One taste was all it took to make them believers. Sam's mouth almost refused to believe that something so succulent existed. Each bite was a tiny bit of heaven. He found himself wishing that there had been ten of them on his plate rather than one. Yet by the time the shrimp had deteriorated to a pile of loose shells, he was full. Next, the servants brought a frosty parfait glass filled with a bubbling liquid. Deep inside the liquid were three tiny scoops of ice cream. They sipped the almost bitter liquid and ate the ice cream with long-handled spoons. As they ate, Sister Vanderkirk explained, It's a traditional feast, what you have eaten. Oh, in a traditional feast, what you have just eaten would be the appetizers. This drink is unsweetened mineral water with a tiny bit of ice cream for sweetness and flavor. It settles the stomach and freshens the palate. In a moment, you will begin to feel hungry again, which is a good thing because we have prepared what we hope is a very American treat. At her words, ser servants placed large bowls of food before them. All around uh, them swirled familiar smells. At each plate, as each plate was set before them, Sister Vanderkirk described it. There were mashed potatoes from Idaho. Candied yams from New York, corn on the cob from California, honeyed ham from Kentucky, corn fritters from Kansas, crayfish from Louisiana, and a host of other dishes, all from the States. As each dish was introduced, the missionaries sighed with delight. The Vanderkirks had done their homework. A feast was prepared for each elder, carefully chosen to remind him of home. The last dish to appear was a gigantic turkey. No one was disappointed. Sam later found out that they had telephoned the parents of each elder and asked what their favorite dish was. Sister Vanderkirk's love for the elders and her desire to please them was reflected in the great cost of the international phone calls to the stage, which was nearly $100 each. By the time dessert was to be served, not a single soul could eat a bite more. Sister Vanderkirk stood and disappeared for a few minutes. She returned with a New York cheesecake, complete with blueberry topping. Sam loved blueberry cheesecake above all other foods. Atop the cake were 21 candles burning brightly. Behind her, a stream of servants brought in desserts for each elder, each different, each burning cheerily with birthday candles. Elder Hall's dessert was a huge cantaloupe, half-filled with orange sherbet ice cream, his favorite dessert. She set the cheesecake before Sam and sang happy birthday. Though a little confused, everyone joined in. Birthdays are the hardest days for missionaries. They often go unnoticed, uncelebrated, and unsung. I know it isn't anyone's birthday today, she said, as soon as the singing ceased. I also know that you often don't celebrate them as much as your families are, because your families are so far away. This is my way of showing my love and saying thank you. I am so grateful you come to our land. Please make a wish and blow out your candles before you before you have to eat wax. They all laughed and blew. A cloud of smoke wafted up from the table. Servants appeared with plates and deftly cut huge pieces of dessert for everyone, while another scooped ice cream of exotic flavors. Not a single fork moved as they stared at the enormous plates of dessert, yet the sweetness was not on their table but in their hearts, and they treasured the joy of the moment. 
The only one who finished his dessert was Elder Hall, who also ate the other half of the cantaloupe. An hour later, elders were sprawled all over the huge living room, groaning in various states of blissful consciousness. With the exception of Elder Hall, they had all dismantled the word of wisdom with their forks. Sister Vanderkirk found Sam lying on an oriental rug and indicated with a nod that she wished him to follow her. With some difficulty, he rolled to a kneeling position and pushed himself to his feet. She chuckled at him from the doorway. Elder Hall stood to follow him. She led them through several rooms and halls until they came to the game room. Brother Vanderkirk sat on the edge of the lard billiard table, which was illuminated by an elaborate stained-glass lamp hanging low over the table. He was holding a cue. He handed them both a cue, and Sister Vanderkirk pulled one from the rack. Elders, have you ever played billiards? He asked, motioned over to the... Oh, that must have been Mr. Vanderkirk-sized <laughs> table. Um, it was larger than a pool table. Neither of them had. He explained the rules. They played one game, and then Brother Vanderkirk grew serious. Elder Sam, I have looked forward to this opportunity for nearly a year now. We haven't spoken since our baptism, and I have longed for this day. Sam turned to face him. Sister Vanderkirk walked to her husband's side and slipped her arm through his. It was clear that what they were about to say was important to both of them. I have some unfinished business, he said, his voice breaking. He lowered his head. There was a long moment of silence. Elder Hall made a, a loud shot and mumbled something about the seven ball. It was his way of not being involved in the conversation, and it was appreciated. Elder, he said, and then paused. Sam, my soul has been tormented, almost without respite. I wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat and can't sleep. It was the one part of my life that my baptism did not wash away, and I need your help. Sam was mystified and a little frightened by his words. What is it? How can I help? He asked, his voice echoing in his deep concern. These were people he loved and cared about deeply. How you can help is by hearing my confession, Brother Vanderkirk said. Sam felt an electric bolt of fear stab through him, but before he could say another word, Brother and Sister Vanderkirk exchanged, exchanged a quick glance, and Brother Vanderkirk continued. Well, that isn't what I mean exactly. I guess what I need is to beg your forgiveness. Whatever for, Sam demanded, his voice curious. For having you whipped that day in court, he said, his, his head lowered. His hands trembled, his tears dripped onto the deep green carpet. Sam wanted to brush it aside, but was stopped by a gentle urging from the spirit. Instead, he said nothing. You see, I was so arrogant, so official. I felt no remorse at the time, and I thought you would learn a lesson that we didn't want you in South Africa. That we were willing to cause you physical torment to deliver that message. I thought you deserved it for bringing a false religion into my beloved country. He fumbled for the cue, his wife still holding onto his arm. Yet, you know well the effect that that event had upon me, upon us. We have found the truth. Heavenly Father, through you, gave us truth and love and hopefully eternal life in response to my evil treatment of you. Sam took a step forward and laid a hand on his arm. He didn't know what to say. Brother Vandeker continued, I was the one who made the observation that you were, were like Paul, who had been whipped for teaching Christ. He paused and sobbed. What I was blind to at that time was that I was like the wicked man who ordered Paul, scourged. Since this thought entered my heart, I have lain awake nights, terrified that I have jeopardized my ex exaltation. I allowed a representative of Jesus Christ to be scourged. It is the same as if I had stood by and allowed Christ himself to be whipped, when it was within my power to stop it. My soul mourns more than words can express that I had so little valor. 
that I willingly stoop to such evil. I can scarcely pray since my guilt is so heavy upon my soul. If God were to walk into this room, I would beg the house to fall on me to hide me from his presence. It seemed to Sam as if the only reason he did not fall to his knees was because Sister Vandekirk still held his arm. It was as if the weight of damnation were upon his soul. Sam stood quietly, with tears trickling down his cheeks until his heart flowed with the right words. There are two observations I want to make, if you'll allow me, he replied. The Vandekirks nodded solemnly. First, as you already knew, I do forgive you. In fact, I look back on those events with rejoicing. I consider it a small price to pay to be able to find and teach you. I love you, and you need to th never think otherwise. We know this is true, Sister Vanderkirk said softly. Second, I believe your answer lies in a statement you made. Brother Vanderkirk looked up, an expression of confusion and doubt on his face. You said, I can hardly pray my guilt is so heavy. Do you remember? Brother Vanderkirk nodded. There's a scripture in Mosiah that says in part that it is evil spirit that teacheth a man not to pray. The effect of this long, painful process of dwelling on the past and being harrowed up with awful feelings has taught you not to pray. Brother Vandekirk, you are laboring under the effects of a false spirit. You have been listening to the wrong voice. Brother Vandekirk looked up, his eyes hopeful yet confused. I don't understand, he said. I thought this was the effect of the Holy Spirit working on me, bringing me to godly sorrow, to repentance, to the recognition of the, my woeful state. Sam allowed the doubtful look to cross his features. The process of repentance is often painful. It does bring a person to recognize their need for repentance and to feel bad for their sins, but it never teaches a person that they are worthless, lost, or beyond redemption, and it certainly never teaches them to stop praying. When the Holy Spirit works with a person, the end effect is peace and joy and brings a person closer to Christ, not further away. The Holy Spirit leaves one with an intense desire to pray, not to hide under the rubble of a tortured soul. Sam stopped for a moment to let his words sink in before he continued. A scripture in Galatians that I memorized a while ago goes like this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Galatians 5.23 Nowhere in that scripture is a list of shame, fear, hopelessness, alienation, shrinking from the presence of God, or any of the negative emotions you described as coming from this experience. I think you need to reevaluate this experience. You have needlessly allowed yourself to be tormented by events long ago and long, long forgiven. Brother Vandekirk stared at him in wonder. So all this time that I have felt worthless and believed that God had no longer loved me, I was actually being deceived by Satan. It was not a question. He straightened, laying a cue across the table. The pain that formerly twisted his features was gone. He took a deep breath and smiled. I feel so much better. I was at the point of not wanting to go to church because I felt unworthy. Now that I understand, it seems so plain, so simple. I will remember from now on. If the effect of a thought processes, uh, of a thought processes, make me feel worthless and like not praying, then those thoughts are not inspired, or they were inspired by an evil source. Elder Hall said. He had remained quiet, his presence in the room forgotten, and everyone turned to look at him. I couldn't help but hear what was, what was said. He explained, apologizing. Quite all right, Elder. Brother Vanderkirk said with an airy wave of his hand. Your thoughts are most welcome. I'm grateful to have been here, Elder Hall replied earnestly. His face lit up with a smile. I have been learning the same lessons from Elder Mahoy. One of the things he has taught me is that the spirit is, uh, spirits can be discerned in the same way people are. Come again? Sister Vanderkirk asked. I didn't say it well. 
We can judge if a person is inspired in what they do and how they live their lives. If their fruits are good and they bring people to Christ and teach them to pray and to love and serve God, then we know that they are inspired of God. Most people come to know Joseph Smith was a prophet by reading the Book of Mormon, one of his fruits of divine origin. The same is true of books and movies, talks and sacrament meeting, and many other things. If their fruits are good, they come from God. In the same context, if a spiritual experience leaves us feeling uplifted and teaches us to pray and worship him, then it comes from God. Brother Vanderkirk was nodding vigorously. I see. Yes, of course. Since all good comes from God and all bad comes from Satan or one of his tempters, then we can discern them by the fruits as well. What a fascinating tool. If I had understood that, I would have rejected messages of self-loathing and the desire to hide from God and saved myself months of sorrow. Well, he concluded, rubbing his hands together briskly, as if trying to warm them, I'll be better armed next time. I wonder how all-encompassing this principle is, Sister Vanderkirk said aloud. I will sometimes be thinking and suddenly have an angry thought or feel grumpy. Those kinds of feelings don't come from the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that they came from an evil spirit? It makes me wonder how much of the evil ones affect our lives. It's kind of spooky to think about. She shuddered and wrapped her arms around herself. Sam thought about this for a moment. Her question was one that he had pondered himself. In reality, he was unsure and was unaware of any prophet speaking on the subject. I really don't know the answer to that question, he replied. I'm unsure what impact they have on our daily feelings, but I am sure that blatantly negative reactions are often evil in origin. I also know that if thoughts lead us away from righteousness or make us feel like not praying, they are definitely from Satan. I prefer to say on the safe side and not attribute much to evil spirits. On the other hand, it really helps to understand what's going on when we have an experience that leaves us feeling alienated from the gospel or Christ. There's a scripture in Moroni chapter 7 that says that the evil one entices and urges us to sin continually. I'm not sure we can interpret it continually to mean every thought we have, but I am sure they do everything in their power to drag us down. Sister Vanderkirk nodded. I've noticed that the big things start small. What I mean is, when Satan does succeed in getting me to feel disobedient or to feel alienated from the gospel, it usually starts as the smallest thing. It might have something, been something... Well, been something someone said that offended me that satan worked on until i grew into something grotesque i agree that satan may not directly inspire every little negative feeling we have but he apparently is able to pick up on them and try to use them against us for my part i prefer to avoid them if it, I, at all if i can she added thoughtfully sam sat on the corner of the billiard table you are wise he agreed there are two great forces at work in our lives on the one side there is christ and the holy spirit they enlighten and entice us for good and strive to bring us unto righteousness. On the other side, and in direct opposition to Christ, are the forces of Satan and the unholy spirits. These continually entice us to depart from the righteousness and choose anything that interferes with our eternal progression, whether it is a blatant sin or just something mindless that saps out strength and keeps the Holy Spirit away. Somewhere in the middle is the mind of man. We are continually exposed to these two great sources of revelation. I know it sounds odd to call temptations revelation, but in a sense, they are. We are continually given the opportunity to choose between these two. The scriptures indicate that we will be exalted or damned or stopped in our progression according to which voice we choose to obey. Brother Vandekirk pulled up a chair and sat down. His thumb and forefinger were on his chin and his elbow on one knee. He didn't realize it, but this was his trademark position. It made Sam smile. I'm always hearing complex conversations in my mind, Brother Vandekirk said. This is especially true since my baptism. They almost sound like arguments and can be confusing. 
I have been having a hard time determining which is the voice of the Spirit and which is not. Like this last episode, I have sometimes listened to the wrong voices, even while trying very hard to do what is right. Elder Hall responded, I have had vast experience following the wrong voice. Before my baptism, I became quite familiar with sin and grew accustomed to that voice. Since my baptism, I have been able to avoid those enticements to sin simply because I recognize the flavor of the evil voice. Since deciding to be obedient to all revelation from the Holy Ghost, I am just as familiar with the voice of truth and can recognize that the Holy Spirit much better now. It might be a matter of experience. Sam nodded. That, and testing the messages against the word of the prophets and scriptures. If I were to receive a prompting to steal something, I would immediately know it was of an evil origin because it conflicts with known truths. Conversely, a prompting to say my prayers is easily identified as a true prompting because it harmonizes with known truth. Something else that helps me identify the source of various promptings is to notice their order. As an example, when I receive an inspiration that I should bear my testimony, immediately following that prompting, I almost always hear a barrage of reasons why I should not. Sister Vandekirk laughed. That's what I hear all the time. I'm beginning to understand. It's like a cross-examination in court. The defense makes a statement that supports their case, and immediately thereafter, the prosecution offers a series of rebuttals, often many more than necessary to prove the point. I do it myself in court. That's fascinating. Her voice was animated, filled with excitement and discovery. In fact, Sam continued, it's one of the evil one's weaknesses to continually tirade against what the Holy Spirit says. Of course, Brother Vandekirk mumbled, of course. The Lord expects us to search diligently in the light of Christ, or our conscience, to determine the difference between the two. Sam nodded. Sam added, As a matter of fact, Elder Hall said, there's a scripture in Moroni chapter 7 that speaks of what we've been discussing. He closed his eyes as if viewing something only he could see. It goes like this, he said, and recited the verses word for word. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and deny him, and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye do not judge wrongly, wrongfully. For with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged." Wherefore, I beseech you, brethren, that you should search diligently in the light of Christ, that you may know good from evil. And if you will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, you will certainly, uh, ye certainly will be a child of Christ. Moroni 7, 17-19 Brother Vandekirk stood, picked up his cue, and said, Elders, every time I talk to you, I feel as if I'm a newborn babe spiritually, and I'm growing frightened about what I will do after you both leave Africa. I seem to easily be diverted from the straight course. When I talk with you, it seems straightforward again. You don't suppose I could offer you well-paying jobs and entice you to stay on, do you? Brother Vandekirk was very serious, and the missionaries smiled at one another. Probably not. We do have time for a game before we have to head back, Sam said with a wink. The following evening, they met with Dawn. It was to be her fourth discussion. She met them on the porch, her face tear-streaked and her eyes red and puffy. Daddy has forbidden me to continue with all discussions, she said without introduction. She sniffled and wiped her eyes with her silk handkerchief. He says his boss is upset that I'm studying to become a Mormon, and he has commented that he would not feel comfortable doing business with someone who has let his daughter be abducted into a cult. Dawn, Sam said softly, suppressing an urge to place a hand on her arm. I'm so sorry. Of course, we'll respect your wishes. I'm really sorry this has brought you so much sorrow. 
Dawn's face turned from sorrow to anger in a flash. The transformation was so sudden that it startled the elders. How dare you assume that my wishes are, and how dare you assume that I am so spineless that his objections would deter me from finding and serving God? Sam opened his mouth to apologize, but she cut him off with a small shake of her head. I'm sorry, Eldest. I didn't mean to snap at you. It's just that I have been fighting this battle in my heart for two days, and I thought you, of all people, would understand how important this is. I'm sure you do. My emotions are just frazzled. What do you plan to do, and how can we help? Sam asked. I plan to continue taking the missionary discussions. I plan to join the true church, she replied simply. Then I have to ask you several questions. How you answer them will determine whether you will be able to continue teaching you, okay? Sam said. Yes, I understand. Okay, are you legally emancipated? In Africa, a teenager could become an adult any time after 16 if they filled out the paperwork and filed it with their courts. Until a person was legally an adult, the mission rules forbid them to teach them without parental consent. Daddy had me file for emancipation last year. That's why I could have my own passport and we could export more gems. So I am. Good. Next question. Will, you f will your father react violently, throw you out of the house, or disown you? I think he will. I know he loves me, but he's a worldly man, and I don't think he will sacrifice his business to let me become a Mormon. Last question. Are you willing to pay that high of a price to join Christ's true church? I am, she said without hesitation. In fact, I want to accelerate the discussions and be baptized as soon as possible. Is that possible? I want to do it while the power of my decision is still strong and before I can be persuaded against it. Sam considered this for a moment. It's possible, he said, but I don't advise it. I suggest you to allow time to elapse so that the fire of your decision does cool. When you go into the waters of baptism, I want your de decision to be as hard and cold as steel. I want it to be sufficient to carry you through the rest of your life. I don't want you to look back on that day and wonder if you had acted hastily or if you should have done it differently. I want you to rejoice every time you think of your baptism. Dawn let her lip slip into a pout, but quiver quickly recovered and smiled. I agree. I would still like to accelerate the lessons, though, but out of a desire to learn, I wish if we finish too soon, we can go through them again and pursue other teachings. But I want to learn as quickly as possible, and I'll stick with the baptismal date we originally set. I think it wise, and I think Dadley will eventually see the light. When Don told her father of her decision, he tried to persuade her otherwise, and failing at that, asked her to move out. Both she and her father wept as she walked down their long drive. He wouldn't even allow her to borrow the car to move away. He didn't close the door until she was out of sight down the long drive. She walked to the Feinstein's home, where she stayed for a few days. Eventually, she moved in with Bishop and Sister Van Halen. They wrapped their arms and their love around her. Sam and Elder Hall were teaching Don the sixth discussion in the Van Halen's home when the phone rang. Having been isolated from the sound of telephone for almost two years, it startled them. It sounded like a fire alarm. Sister Van Halen answered the call and handed him a note. He waited until Elder Hall was giving the next concept before glancing at it. What he read more than surprised him. Elder Mahoy, Neil Whitehall called to request that you come to the hospital and talk to him. Telling number 235225, room 1128. They had been expecting a call from the Whitehalls, but their wayward son Neil was the last person they were anxious to meet again. Sam judged him to be one of the most evil men he had ever known. Nevertheless, they used the bishop's phone to call as soon as the discussion was over. Neil was abrupt and merely made an appointment for the following Thursday. Sam was not looking forward to it. 
The hospital looked smaller in the daylight. Sam knew little about hospitals. This one seemed modern, but had an air of backwardness as he found frightening. On the main floor was a large room filled with dentist chairs. They had never seen such a thing. The room was roughly the size of a basketball court, yet had a dentist chair every ten feet in all directions. About a third of the chairs had someone in them. The chairs each had the old cable-operated drills. The sound and smell of drilling teeth drifted from the room. Sam was old enough to have a couple of teeth drilled using the old cable drills, and it made his teeth hurt to remember. The elders found the elevator and made their way to the eleventh floor. Neil's room was windowless and felt cheerless. They found Neil lying in bed, his skin pallid and pasty-looking. Hello, Neil, Sam said much more cheerfully than he felt. Neil rolled his head toward them, and without changing expression, motioned them to enter. The bed was high enough that sitting would have made them invisible to Neil, so they stood. When Neil spoke, his voice was raspy. Without any attempt at pleasantries, he got directly to the point. I have been lying here for almost three weeks now, with nothing else to do than to think about how I got here. I have gone over it in my mind, trying to figure out how you two fit into it all. Logic tells me that I had this disease long before I met you in my parents' home, and you telling me I would have a disease that would take away my most valued body part could have been wishful thinking on your part. Logic also tells me that you probably heard my parents mention that my best friend's daughter had been murdered, even though they said they did not, and Logic tells me that you may have guessed or suspected that her father was a criminal. He paused as if struggling to find the next words. Logic. What a fickle thing, he mused aloud. It's beyond logic, however, that you could have gotten all three thing of those things right. I have tried every avenue of logic, and none close to explaining how you could have correctly guessed three incredibly obscure things about a total stranger. Logic, my faithful companion, my guide in hating God, my sword Excalibur in battling religious stupidity, has betrayed me, and now suggests that the only way you could have known these things is that you, you were either clairvoyant or inspired of God. I personally perform... Uh, prefer the former explanation, yet logic is as equally agnostic toward things paranormal as it is toward the entire idea of God. His eyes fixed on Sam with such intensity that Sam felt like turning away, but something in his gaze pulled at Sam's heart. His intensity was as much a cry for help as it was a tirade against all things spiritual. So you see, I have asked you to come, and if you would be so kind to explain yourself. You know how I hate falseness, flattery, false religion, false spirituality, false emotions, anything false. I beg of you, tell me only the truth, and I will do my best to believe your words. I'm floundering here, and for the first time in my life, I'm reaching out to a fellow mortal to help me. Help me, Elder Mahoy, please. Sam was surprised when he felt the familiar warmth and of truth in his bosom. He had judged Neil as unrepentant, unsalvageable, and had personally written him off. The truth that touched him was a chastisement, a rebuke from the Lord, and it stung him to silence. Sam had wanted the truth to be a lesson for Neil, but it was a lesson for himself. No words could come to his lips. The rebuke lashed against his soul in firm yet loving admonition. Here was a son of God, a son that the father loved as much as he did Sam, a precious soul needing help. God had prepared him, had conditioned his soul for teaching, and Sam had failed to see anything but the facade Neil erected around himself. Tears formed in Sam's eyes as he struggled to repent, to readjust his soul, and to see Neil in a purer light. Neil saw his own struggle, and without understanding the source of it, was touched. 
The truth, Sam said, is that I owe you an apology. Both Neil and Elder Hall were stunned. It was not what either had expected. I don't understand. If an apologies are due, they should be from me. What? Sam cut him off with a small shake of his hand. When you asked me for the truth, I felt overwhelmed by the spirit. It's a familiar feeling and often comes when it's time to teach. Yet the truth that came to me was a rebuke. I stand rebuked by God for judging you and for not seeing your worth in God's eyes. I completely overlook the thing I preach, which is his great and abiding love for you as his son. I don't understand. At this point, it's only important that I understand and that you please forgive me for prejudging you. Elder, I'm stunned. Your words shatter my thinking to splinters. I wanted you to be... I wanted to debate the existence of God with you, and you beg my forgiveness. What kind of person are you? I'm a person who has wronged you and is humbly asking for your forgiveness, that's all, Sam said, his voice small. He felt convicted of his sins and his failure as a disciple of the Lord. He only knew that he had been very wrong, and that he must beg for Neil's forgiveness no matter the outcome. Elder Mahoy, I can see that you are in dead earnest here, and to whatever extent you have offended me, I do forgive you. However, I have to say that I can't think of a single way that you have. You have been civil with me in every way, so perhaps you could explain in what way you feel you have offended me. It wasn't at all what I wanted to hear from you, but it has certainly got my attention. He pushed himself up higher in his bed and rearranged his pillows behind his back. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. One who loves him with all of my soul. Nothing is more important to me than to represent him well and lead others to understand and love him as well. As near as I understand him, his greatest attribute is love. He loved us so much that he was willing to die for us, all of us, whether we loved him back or not, whether we knew him, knew about him, and believed in him. Sam hung his head. When I first met you, I disliked you and decided that you were beyond redemption. I concluded that you were one of the most despicable men I had ever known undeserving of God's love and forgiveness. In this way, I offended you. In reality, I offended God even more to believe that he would not love you in spite of your anger towards him. It wasn't until I was overcome by the Spirit and felt his love for you that this became apparent, and it has been a great lesson to me. Neil lay in his bed, his face stony. So, God used me to teach you that he loves me, Neil replied. It was not a question, but a summation of Sam's words. It has been a stunning revelation to me, Sam said, almost immediately realizing that Neil might take offense at his words. But before he could say anything further, Neil merely added, Me too. After saying this, Neil seemed amused and threw back his head in a hearty laugh that echoed around the room. It was the most amazingly rich laugh Sam had ever heard, and he felt his heart lifting. He was soon laughing too. Now I want to get something straight, Neil said, still smiling. This spirit you mentioned, that said God loved me, and that you said was a familiar feeling, what does it feel like? Sam was about to explain when Neil interrupted. No, let me explain it, and you tell me if I'm right. It is a feeling in the center of the chest, almost a warmth or comfortable feeling, am I right? Sam and Elder Hall nodded. And the general effect it has upon the mind is one of peace and joy, he added. You've obviously felt this before, Elder Hall observed. Just now, a few seconds ago, just before I laughed. As a matter of fact, I believe that's why I laughed. I have lain here for three weeks in utmost turmoil, confusion, bitterness, and when that feeling of peace hit me, it was absolute. When I mean 
is, not only did it bring peace concerning what you were saying, but also concerning my illness, my future, my eternal welfare, and everything else. For just a moment, I felt complete, total peace. I don't believe I have ever felt real joy before. It was unexplainable, unreasonable, illogical happiness. It felt so good, all I could do was laugh for joy. You've described it perfectly, Sam replied. Do you want to know what is odd? I felt it so strongly for a moment that I will never doubt for the rest of my life that it was real. Although I can handily feel it now, I seem to have returned to my former feelings of depression. Explain that to me. I don't understand why the Lord does a lot of things he does, Sam answered, but one possible explanation is that he wanted you to have a taste of his love for you. We are messengers for Christ and his church, and if the people are ready when we speak, the Holy Spirit bears witness that our words are true. I suppose that since we are talking of his love for you, he, his way of bearing witness of that fact was to let you feel it for a moment. Fascinating. I would like to try that again. Do you suppose you could tell me about his love for me again, do you? Let's try another subject. You already have that one down. Elder Hall, will you tell the young man who, about the young man who learned about the existence of God in a way that was similar to your own? This young man was confused about God and which church he should join. His name was Joseph Smith. Elder Hall did most of the rest of the teaching that evening. Sam was grateful because his soul was weary and burdened by the recent chastisement from the Spirit. He had never felt such a thing before, and even, and even though he felt cleansed and much blessed by all that he had happened, he still felt as if the experience had inexplicably drained his soul batteries. Elder Hall was filled with the Spirit, and his words were inspired and inspiring. Neil was demanding, was a demanding student and asked pointed and detailed questions, but his questions were now to discover truth, not to challenge it. Neil continued with his chemotherapy during, more, during many more visits with the missionaries. Each time they came, he was weaker and seemed sicker. Yet, as his body weakened, his spirit strengthened until it seemed as if his body was an unfit habitation for his mighty spirit. Like Paul of Tarsus, who was, had persecuted the church and turned away from his sin in a single moment, Neil charged in a mighty leap towards righteousness. His face glowed with the Spirit, and his words rang with conviction. He read the Book of Mormon almost in a single setting and rejoiced in it. He devoured every book that brought him. they, be, they brought him and begged for more. He coerced them into coming every day for a while to complete his spiritual education. Three weeks from the time they first visited Neil in the hospital, they came to find him too weak to sit up in bed. He greeted them weakly, but with a big smile. His face was aglow with the spirit, and he radiated hope and love. This marvelous change in him seemed as miraculous as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Elders, come closer so I don't have to shout, he said, chuckling. His voice was small and seemed to wheeze from his emaciated body. Emaciated body. The doctors tell me I'm too weak to undergo the operation. It seems I have wasted much quicker than they expected. Without the operation, I will die. If they operate, I will die. So you see, I'm going to die. They told me to get things in order. Tears formed in Sam's eyes, and he knew Neil's words were true. He fervently wished that the Lord had let them heal him. To lift the curse he had pronounced upon himself by his own words. In all their hours of teaching Neil, he had never once asked them to bless him or to remove the curse. He had, however, expressed the thought many times that his curse was a blessing, because it brought him to the depths of humility where he was finally able to find the Lord. I have one thing that remains undone, which I know 
with absolute certainty I must do before I can face God without shrinking from his presence. What is that? Sam asked, his voice breaking. I want to be baptized by authority for the remission of my sins. Without this, I fear death with all of my being. When my sins are washed clean, I can die in peace. Neil, I rejoice in your desire to be baptized, Sam toiled him joyfully. Elder Hall expressed similar feelings. We need to come up with a way to do it, though, since there is so little left of you that I'm not sure the doctors will let you travel to the chapel, let alone be baptized. Have you thought of a way to do it? I have, Neil replied. I wouldn't survive a trip from the hospital. However, one of the nurses said that there's a small indoor pool that they use for therapy right here in the hospital. The doctors have reluctantly given their permission to allow me to be baptized there. Will you do it? Absolutely. When? Was all Sam could think to say. Now, tonight, as soon as my parents and bis Bishop and Sister Van Halen can get here. I feel a powerful urgency to do it tonight, almost as if I won't be able to do it tomorrow. Please, help me do this. Sam went to the payphone in the hall near Neil's room. He dialed Neil's parents. They were already planning to visit Neil, and when Sam explained Neil's desires, they were excited and said that they would be there in a little more than an hour. Sam finally found the bishop in his office. He was in the middle of an interview, but said he would immediately get Sister Van Halen and they would come. He would make the appropriate phone calls and bring the necessary paperwork. He would be also be there in a little more than an hour. Two interns rolled Neil's bed through the double doors that led to the pool. Dawn came with Bishop and Sister Van Halen. Neil's parents brought Neil's older sister, who the elders had never met. <laughs> I don't even know why I'm getting so choked up reading this. It's just I know that there's some powerful stuff coming, I guess. <laughs> <clears throat> word spread through the hospital and one doctor and two nurses who were LDS joined them Sam asked the doctor to offer the opening prayer one of the nurses asked if she could sing a special musical number and Sam asked Elder Hall to give a talk on baptism Bishop Van Halen handed Sam a bundle of white clothing Sam had completely forgotten that he needed to wear white while performing the ordinance. He was grateful for the bishop's thoughtfulness. Neil was no problem, since everything he wore was hospital white. Sam quickly changed. Bishop Van Halen conducted the meeting. The prayers were sweet and brought the Holy Spirit in rich abundance. The nurse sang like an angel, her voice clear and vibrant in the small room. Elder Hall's talk was brief, yet inspired. Finally, it was time. Jeez, this isn't even sad yet. Okay. Sam stood and approached Neil's bed. All his tubes had been disconnected and needles removed. He stopped by the bed, unsure how to help Neil into the water. Before he could utter a word, Neil's father stepped between them. He was not much larger than Neil himself, yet without effort. Reached into the bed and lovingly lifted his son. Their eyes locked, as if truly connecting for the first time. Yep. Well, I've made a decision, me, Cameron Briggs, that I am not meant to record sad audiobooks. <laughs> this is so painful. Sam entered the pool. The water was comfortable. 
Neil's father slipped off his shoes and carried his son into the water until he was waist deep. He carefully transferred his son to Sam. <clears throat> Neil's emaciated body had wasted to nothing, which startled Sam with its lightness. He carefully lowered Neil's legs into the water. Neil... I don't know if I can finish this. Neil looped his arm around Sam's neck. Even with Sam's help, Neil had barely enough strength to support his own weight, even in the weightlessness of the water. Neil's body trembled with anticipation and joy. Sam whispered in his, Neil, in, in his ear, Neil, I'll support you all the way. Trust me and keep your arm around my neck. Neil smiled and nodded. Sam raised his right hand to the square, and in a voice of quiet authority said, Neil Eugene Whitehall, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Sam slowly knelt down. Neil closed his eyes with a look of ecstasy. Sam only closed his at the last moment. He continued to lower himself and Neil into the water until his entire body went under the water and Neil's arm around his neck was completely submerged. Just as carefully, he swiftly lifted him from the water. Neil came up, his face beaming with joy. It's done, he cried in a hoarse voice. I can finally meet God with a peaceful heart. I'm finally ready. A single reverberating laugh of exquisite joy flowed from his throat, and he fell silent, his strength completely spent. Neil's mother wept with joy, and his father carried him out of the water to his bed. The nurses efficiently removed his wet clothes and dried him. Within minutes, he was dry and back in his own room. Neil insisted that he had been con to be confirmed immediately. So despite his weakened conditions, all the priesthood holders laid their hands gently upon his head, and Elder Hall bestowed the sacred gift of the Holy Ghost. Among the words he spoke were these. <laughs> I'm crying worse than Jimmy. <laughs> this is bad. Okay, think other thoughts. Man. Neil, you have fulfilled the words that were spoken to you. The curse is lifted, and you are made whole through your faith. The doctors, nurses, and others left quietly, and only Neil's parents, the bishop, and the elders remained. It was time to go, but it was hard to say farewell. Everyone suspected this parting might be the last. Neil was listless upon his pillows. Yet his face glowed with joy. It was as if death were only waiting for them to leave so that it might bear him away. Sam held Neil's hand for a few minutes and then tearfully and quietly said goodbye. The elders were a dozen steps down the hall when Elder Hall suddenly skidded to a stop. An idea had suddenly come to him. It was so sudden and incredibly pure that he instantly recognized its source. He spun around, leaving Sam walking a few more steps alone. He ran back into the room, every eye turned toward him as he slid to a stop on the slick floor. Sam plowed into his back, his mind whirling with wonder. Neil, Elder Hall said, trying to control his voice, I have some bad news. 
The first time I met you, I told you not to lie to me, Elder. Neil said sternly and then laughed weakly. You're not going to die, Elder Hall exclaimed, as if the burden of the message was too big for his heart to keep inside. What? Everyone exclaimed simultaneously. Elder Hall was barraged by questions, none of which he answered until it again grew quiet. Neil, I don't ever think that I mentioned it, but I dropped out of medical school to come on a mission. I was a junior in my master's program, and that isn't my point, really. No, I didn't know that, Neil replied, his voice tired but tinted with hope. Well, you know how your cancer has not responded to any of the treatments? Yes, he slowly answered, and has actually grown worse. Yes, well, I know why. It just came to me as I was leaving. Tell me, Neil urged, his eyes brightened with hope. It's because you don't have cancer. What? What do you mean? All the doctors said I have it. All the tests. Everything indicates cancer. What would I have if I don't have cancer? He asked, his voice filled with wonder. <sighs> Sam was skeptical at first as he listened to their conversation until the spirit swept over him like a soft breeze. Peace entered his soul and he knew Elder Hall was right. He stepped forward and laid a hand on Neil's knee. Listen to him, Neil. Listen to your heart. Listen to the Holy Ghost. Elder Hall glanced at Sam and smiled, and he continued. I'm not saying this because I studied medicine. I'm saying this because the spirit wrought on me a few minutes ago and gave me this message. I know it's true because of listening, uh, of learning to listen and implicitly trust the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It hasn't responded to cancer treatment because it isn't cancer. It's an infection or something similar. Have the doctors do another test. Have them look for something simple. Force them to give you antibiotics no matter what they find and take you off of the cancer drugs. But they said stopping the drugs would immediately let the cancer kill me, Neil replied, his voice worried. Stop thinking with your logic and use the gift you just received. Let the Holy Ghost guide you. Feel it instead of think. Let the Holy Ghost take you beyond your mind's ability to understand. Think back on the original words of the sign that you asked for, the part of your person you value most, will be denied to you until you repent of your sins. Neil finished quietly as if intimately familiar with that faithful sentence. Until implies there will be something after. That the effect is not permanent, he realized as he spoke. Neil pondered Elder Hall's words a minute longer, and then reached up and pulled the tape from his arms, where the nurses had already retracted his or reattached his tubes. He pulled a needle from each arm, and with his father's help, one from his ankle. Elders... My soul has finally triumphed over my brain. I have repented of my sins and the words are fulfilled. Whether I live or die now is irrelevant. I have finally triumphed. He asked his father to find the doctor and bring him to his room. With these words, he fell back onto his bed and closed his eyes. Oh, that turned out way different than I thought. <laughs> okay. Get it together, Cam. It was several days later, during the sixth discussion with Don, that the bishop's phone rang once more. Again, Sister Van Halen handed Sam a note. This time, he did not wait, but in interrupted himself to open it. Neil Whitehall called to tell you his tests still indicate cancer, but he has refused further cancer treatment. He says to tell you he has succeeded in convincing the doctors to give him antibiotics and feel stronger each day. He sends his love. It took two weeks for the cancer results to disappear from Neil's tests. The doctors were mystified and to the end maintained that his cancer was spontaneously cured itself. Several were insistent that Neil's baptism had cleansed him. 
which was interesting since they were not LDS. However, they gave zero credence to the idea that the antibiotics had anything to do with this healing. It was interesting to Sam that they were far more protective of their medical beliefs than their spiritual ones. Neil was released from the hospital and after a brief convalescence at his parents' home began his new his life anew, completely cured of both cancers previously robbing him of life, cancer of the body and of the soul. Dawn's eyes were bright with happiness when Sam told her Neil's good news. She had enjoyed his baptism and it made her look forward to her own. Her own baptismal date was still a few weeks away. I just knew he could recover. He would recover, she said, her accent even more British than usual. I just knew he would. I felt it. Here. She pressed her palm to her heart. Elder Mahoy, how much longer until you return to America? Sam had to think for a moment. Six weeks, he answered. Just six weeks. It still seemed to him as if he had much more to accomplish in the short time remaining pressed upon him. I want to ask you something. I hope you won't get mad, but I have thought about it a lot, and... She paused as if unsure. Sam was surprised at her timidity. Don was many things, all of them wonderful, but timid was not one of them. What is it, Don? Oh. <laughs> what is it, Don? What do you want to ask me? I want to go to America, she said in a rush. Sam nodded slowly. Well, I'm sure someday you will, he began, but she cut him off. No, you don't understand. I want to go to America with you six weeks from now. Her eyes sparkled with hope and fear. She blinked rapidly, as if trying to keep the tears from gathering. He could tell she was serious and feared his rejection. Sam took a deep breath. He could almost hear President Carlson's lecture. President Carlson's fear would be that he was taking Dawn to America because he had fallen in love with her. It was true that he loved her, but it was not the love with her, not in love with her. He hoped the distinction would be sufficient for President Carlson. On the other hand, Dawn was without home, family support, or work. She was too young to provide for herself entirely, yet old enough to make her own decisions. Sam knew his mother would wrap her arms around Dawn and love her as much as her own children. He could imagine his father's reaction and their inevitable conversation, probably late that first night, about Sam's questionable relationship with Dawn. But in the end, his father would be satisfied. No, the obstacle was President Carlson, and it was no minor roadblock. Mission rules were explicit about taking people home from the mission. The obstacles were vast, and everywhere Sam's mind turned, he saw yet another and another. It seemed impossible, yet at this moment it felt right to him. Somehow it felt right. He glanced at Dawn, who was fighting an unsuccessful battle to keep tears out of her eyes. She had lowered her head, tears falling silently onto her fists bunched in her lap. She had interpreted his silence as rejection, and her hope was quickly evaporating. Again, he drew a deep breath. I think it's a marvelous idea, Sam told her. You do? Dawn burst out, her head snapping up so quickly that she had wondered how she didn't get whiplash. She jumped as if to rush to him, but then thought better of it and sat back down. She clasped, or clapped her hands silently and bounced her feet in excitement like a small girl. Elder Hall whistled, which sound, sounded like a bomb falling. The metaphor was apropos. Dawn, Sam said as he closed the scriptures and set them aside, I really do think it would be wonderful. I know my parents will welcome you with open arms. They will, she said, marvel in her voice. I was thinking of getting a room, finding a job, and maybe going to college, but your parents could would take me in for a while, a total stranger? They love everyone and would treat you like their own daughter, he answered with absolute confidence. He had seen them do it many times. 
She clapped her hands together and held them to her lips as if in prayer. Again, her eyes misted with tears of happiness. You need to begin immediately to get your papers in order to say goodbye to your father. I need to go talk to President Carlson. I'm not looking forward to that at all. He glanced at Elder Hall, who rolled his eyes. Do you have money for plane fare? Elder Mahoy, I have more money than... Oh, <laughs> English accent. <clears throat> Elder Mahoy, I have more money than you can imagine. My father has been salting away a fortune in Swiss bank accounts in my name since I was a baby. I'm not sure, but I can possibly buy the airplane as easily as a seat on it. Won't your father transfer the money to another account now that you've moved out? Elder Hall asked impulsively. In the first place, I don't think he would do that to me. Secondly, he can't. Since the day I became a legal adult, I have meticulously moved all of the funds into accounts he has no knowledge of. Oh, Sam and Elder Hall said simultaneously. Dawn seemed so naive, trusting and unassuming. Setting a scene this side of her was surprising. Part of her personality was very capable, and maybe even a little shrewd. Sam had tried to imagine what it might be like to kneel at an altar across from a beautiful woman all dressed in white. He had replayed the scene many times in his mind, each time altering the face, the room, the dress she wore. Yet he had never imagined a woman more beautiful than Dawn, dressed in a simple white gown as she slowly walked down the steps and toward him in the baptismal font. Her face was radiant with happiness aglow with the Holy Spirit. Sam's breath caught in his throat and tears came to his eyes. Still a step away, she extended a hand toward him. A momentary look of wonder in her eyes, she reached out and felt her slender hand slide into his. She smiled, partly at him, but mostly at the joy of the moment. The road from Dawn's front door to this sacred moment had been eventful. Her father had kicked her out of her home and refused to talk to her. She repeatedly called, wrote letters, and even gone to visit him. The butler had tearfully refused to allow her to enter even the foyer. Sister Van Halen told Sam that Dawn often cried herself to sleep, or called out her father's name in her sleep. The day after she asked to go to America with Sam, Dawn had gone to the bank to check on her accounts. She was told that none of them existed. Her father was shrewder than she. One moment she thought she could afford the, to buy an airplane, and the next she was destitute. Yet here she was, standing before him, radiating joy and anxiously awaiting the first of many ordinances on her road to exaltation. Thoughts such as these flowed across Sam's mind and warmed his soul. Here stood a beautiful, precious daughter of Heavenly Father, a moment of truth and light, and it was his privilege to baptize her. His heart thrilled. He directed Dawn to stand to his left. He gazed into her eyes for a moment and then swept them across to Saint standing at the side of the font. He was ready. He raised his right arm to the square. A, a short moment of deep silence followed before he spoke the sacred words. Don Olivia Pauli, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. At that moment, a door opened and closed, and a man's voice boomed across the crowd. Wait, the voice said urgently. People parted, and the man came forward and knelt before the font. Daddy? Don asked with wonder in her voice. Mr. Pauli reached out, and Don took a step toward him. Both of his hands were covered over hers. What he said was so soft that only Sam and Don heard it in the hush that had fallen over the room. I love you, he said. So saying, he released her and nodded at her and then Sam. She returned to Sam's side, and he raised his arm to the square, and in, in a vo voice of quiet authority spoke the words of salvation. Donna Olivia Pauli, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. He opened his eyes to find hers fastened upon his. It was as if their souls touched and something electric passed between them. 
He slowly lowered her into the water, her eyes still upon his. As the waters rose, she closed her eyes, and the, as the waters flowed over her. Beneath the water, her face was angelic. Sam carefully lifted her from the font. When she opened her eyes, they were still on him. Immediately, she flung her arms around him and held him close. Thank you, she said quietly in Sam's ear. Breaking free from him, she cried, Daddy! She rushed toward the stairs in a swirl of water. Her father ran to meet her, and they fell into one another's arms with a watery sound. Dawn laughed and wept loudly, and her father kept repeating, I love you. I'm sorry. It was church policy for President Carlson to interview every missionary prior to him or her going home. Sam had dreaded it for several weeks. He entered the now-familiar office and took a seat on a richly upholstered chair. It occurred to him that he had sat in the same chair every time he had entered the room. Not every experience here had been sweet, and he fully expected this one to trend toward bitter. Yet the interview was rich with warmth and praise, both of him and the others who had entered the mission filled with him. The requisite worthiness questions were asked and answered, and President Carlson was satisfied. My dear boy, what an asset you have been to the mission, to me personally, and to the people of this continent. You can rest assured that you have made a lasting impact upon all who have known you. I have never known a missionary more willing to serve and do the Lord's work, or more prone to cause problems. He laughed, and Sam knew that President Carlson's opinion of his problems did not include any blame for wrongdoing. His mission was different and difficult in many ways, yet he had fought a good fight in his heart sword. Do you have any questions? President Carlson asked unexpectedly. Well, yes, there's something I'm curious about. Whatever happened to Elder Beasler? President Carlson frowned and turned his chair toward, uh, uh, turned his chair until he was profiled to Sam. He seemed to be considering his answer. Generally, he finally said, we do not make public mention of what happens to other missionaries. However, I feel that you deserve an explanation, especially considering the circumstances. Elder Beasler did not return to his mission duties after leaving you at the courthouse. He just disappeared with the mission's vehicle. He was found several weeks later in Cape and arrested. In the Cape and arrested. He was accused and convicted of perjury, several traffic violations, and car theft. The latter was dropped, and because the church declined to press charges, he received one year jail sentence and is presently serving that sentence. However, I received a phone call just yesterday asking if he had been here. At first, I thought it was a member calling, but the more I thought about it, I wondered if it could be the police. I fear he may have escaped and means mischief towards the church. President Carlson interlaced his hands over his chest and lowered his chin as if in deep thought. Then he straightened and resumed his narrative. As a result of leaving the mission field without permission and the crimes committed, he was excommunicated from the church. It's a sad affair. You may be interested to know, however, that he expressed considerable remorse for leaving you to be whipped. He said it didn't register to him what your sentence had been until after he had left the building. By then, he had realized it was probably already in progress and didn't have the courage to go back and put a stop to it. The reason he ran away was that he was ashamed of himself. When the Lord's will was made manifest to me that he was to lose his membership, I was shocked because I considered his remorse genuine. However, when the verdict was announced, he was extremely angry. He cursed and raged and had been taken from the room. I was certain the Lord's verdict included past acts much worse than those of the present. Since going to jail, he has called this office many times, asking for your address so he could write you a letter and ask your forgiveness. I did not give it to him. 
because I felt you had enough to deal with without being exposed to his emotions. Besides, I had a hard time believing he was sincere after his outburst and suspected he had darker motives for wanting your address. I hope I did the right thing. I'm glad you told me these things, Sam said. I'm especially grateful that Elder Beesler was not whipped. Before I officially give you my blessing to leave the mission field, I feel as if there is something you would like to bring up. What is it, Elder? Sam was taken aback by his perceptiveness, but he knew that President Carlson was a spiritual man upon whom the mantle of his office rested fully. Sam cleared his throat and struggled to find the right words. There was no words, right words to find. Finally, he just blurted it out. The young woman we just baptized. Sister Polly, Elder Carlson interjected, a look of understanding crossing his features. Yes, well, she was disowned by her father. I'm familiar with her story. Her father came to the baptism at last moment, and they were reconciled. It's a touching account. That's mostly accurate. He has forgiven her and has asked her to come home, but she knows if she does, her father will lose his business. For some reason, his employer hates Mormons, so now they are at odds again, but from opposite positions. He wants her to come home, and she refuses. She is determined to go to America with me. I honestly don't know what to do. President Carlson was silent for a long moment. Sam waited breathless. There's nothing you can do, President Carlson finally said as he slapped a sheet of paper back into the file folder on his desk. It's a free country, and she's a legal adult. Even if she wants to go to America on the same plane you're on, I don't see a big problem with that. Nor do I see why her doing so impacts you or your mission. But I know there are strict guidelines about missionaries doing this sort of thing. Elder, you taught me a valuable lesson actually several of them. I know what the mission rules say, and in the strictest sense, this violates them. However, I feel at peace with that situation, and choose to ignore the entire thing. You have served an honorable mission. That's all I need to know. My challenge to you is that you never allow yourself to forget what you have learned here. You have great potential for good, and consequently, have potential for failure. He paused to consider the next words carefully. Everything has its opposite. Its opposite that is equal in power. You taught me this. Your spiritual greatness will bring you a lifetime of joy and a life filled with trials of great intensity. You have the power to realize the promise of exaltation in this life, but also the power to become a son of perdition. These are your possibilities. You will not end up with something in between. Beware, my boy. For God's sake, for your sake, beware all your life. There were tears in President Carlson's eyes as he spoke barely above a whisper. Sam received the warning with an open heart. Sam and Elder Hall arrived at Jan Smoot's airport three hours early. Bishop and Sister Van Halen met them at the door and relieved Sam of his only suitcase. As they walked toward the ticket counters, others joined them until nearly 50 people pressed around him. Most everyone he loved was there. The Vanderkirks with an armed escort, Tom and Linda Snodgrass with their new baby, Neil still looking frail, and his parents, the only people missing were Marcia and Melody whom he pres presumed were still in Rhodesia. The knights still in Rhodesia, the president and sister Carlson. Sam suddenly realized with a start that Dawn was nowhere to be seen. He knew she had tickets to this flight and wondered if everything was all right with her. The crowd of well-wishers migrated to an unused boarding area. Soon everyone was laughing and telling stories of Sam's deeds and misdeeds. He was embarrassed by the attention, yet his soul rejoiced in his dear friends and simultaneously ached at their impending separation. This was going to be much harder than leaving his family back in Salt Lake City. At least there he, know, he knew he would return. 
There was still an hour to go when Dawn arrived. Her face was aglow with happiness as she directed the servants carrying her many bags. Her father attended her like another servant, anxious to do anything to help. She kept one arm laced tightly through his entire, his the entire time. When she spotted Sam, she hurried over and kissed him on the cheek. Elder Hall gave a meaningful cough. Dawn shot Elder Hall a meaningful glance. He's almost not a missionary anymore, so I can almost give him a kiss. When we get to America, I'm going to lay a proper one on him. Everyone laughed, and Elder Hall threw up his hands in mock resignation. As the hour grew closer, the group grew more sober, until all eyes were misty, and words no longer seemed adequate. Sam found himself in a daze, looking at faces he loved, suddenly aware that he would probably never see them again. Bishop Van Halen looked at his watch and pointed toward the gate. It's time, he said. A murmur of disappointment simultaneously escaped many lips. Sam stood and found himself facing Thomas Nodgrass. Sam, I want to give you something. I know it's small and you said you no longer want one, but I felt impressed that this would be the most important thing I could give you. He held out a narrow box wrapped in colored paper. As soon as Sam touched it, he knew what it was. The feel, the weight, the very essence of the package was familiar to him. His eyes filled with tears. He didn't want it, yet his soul cried out in relief that he now owned one once again. He tore open the paper and flipped the tiny, shiny latches. A silver, beautiful flute lay nestled in blue velvet. He snapped the lid close and hugged Tom and Linda. Neil stepped up next to and handed him a long envelope. Sam pulled a bound manuscript from the envelope. The title read, Atheists Never Die Atheists. Oh, Atheists Never Die Atheists by Neil E. Whitehall. I already have a publisher, he said, as Sam studied the cover. I was so heavily involved in the atheistic movement that my conversion to Christianity was has created quite a stir. This is my way of being a missionary. His voice broke. Thank you for all you've done for me. They shook hands and embraced. Brother and Sister Vandekirk approached next and held out a small package. Man, I can't even make it through a goodbye. <laughs> he took the small package with wonder in his eyes. He opened it to find a piece of knotted leather about six inches long mounted inside a small viewing box that could not be opened. A small brass plaque held the following, Acts 5.41, and they departed rejoicing that they were counted worthy to su suffer shame for his name. Is this? It is, they replied simultaneously. In reality, Brother Vandekirk told him, it is your gift to us. I had two made and keep the other on my desk. By your stripes I came to know Christ. I hope someday I can repay that great debt of your gift to me. God bless you. His voice faltered. They embraced. He held Sister Vandekirk's hand until she kissed him on both cheeks and turned away. Everyone present came forward until his pockets, his hands and pockets were full. Don preceded him through the gate and just as he was turning to go, President and Sister Carlson ran toward them. Elder Mahoy, they called from a short distance. They hurried toward him as the speaker announced the final boarding for his flight. As he hugged Sister Carlson, he couldn't help noticing she smelled of smoke. Elder, President Carlson said as he grasped his hand, We almost missed you. We would not believe what happened. We awoke this morning to a smoke-filled house. We barely got everyone out. The mission home has burned to the ground. No, Sam cried. His mind, 
his mind reeled at the thought of all the beautiful paintings, marble statues, and other treasures being destroyed in the fire. Oh, man. The terrible part is that the police say it was arson. Whoever set the fire also blocked the outside doors to trap us inside. We climbed through a window. It was a blatant attempt at murder, I'm afraid. Following my suggestion, they checked on Elder Beasler, and he has been released from prison. His parents had arranged for him to be deported to his hometown, and he was taken to the airport, but apparently he didn't get on the plane. Everyone is looking for him now. I'm afraid if they find out he had anything to do with this fire, they won't let him to be deported, but he will put him in prison for a long time. Do you really think it was Elder Beasler, Sam asked, his hands trembling. It was standard procedure for missionaries to go home and to spend their last few days in the mission home. By special permission, Sam had not gone back to the mission home, but an arsonist would not have known that, Sam thought grimly. Perhaps it's unjust of me to suspect him without greater evidence, President Carlson said, his voice trailing off in thoughtful silence. So much destruction, Sam replied, his mind walking through the plush interior of the old mansion. So much destruction. Yes, it's a tragedy, and no one was injured. And we were able to save most of the mission records. Only a few pieces of art were saved. I did have the presence of mind to grab something very important, though. He pressed a small package into Sam's hand. Sam opened the box to find a gold tie clasp holding a perfect diamond the size of his thumbnail. He inhaled sharply when he recognized the stone Melody's father had given him in gratitude for his part in saving his daughters. Others leaned over the box and gasped. Even in South Africa, where large diamonds were commonplace, this was an exceptional stone. May I? Mr. Polly asked, and he took the box from Sam's hands. He produced a lop loop from his pocket and held the stone to the light. He frowned and lowered the diamond. I know this stone, he said in an excited voice. It was cut in my factory. It's a full 22 carats, D in color, ice blue, flawless under an X10 loop. It's almost priceless. I tried to purchase it, and I couldn't. It was sold to a wealthy land baron in Rhodesia. How did you come by it? <laughs> I don't have time to examine Sam. Blah. Sam said, taking the stone back. It was a gift. President Carlson can explain. He shoved the box into his pants pocket. He gave both the Carlsons a hug and turned toward the gate. Elder, Mr. Polly persisted, I want to buy that stone. I will give you a wholesale value here and now. Sam stopped walking. Dawn came back and slid her arm into his. She whispered, Leave the stone with Daddy. Let him buy it or send it to you later. It really is too valuable to carry around. How much is its wholesale value? Mr. Polly leaned forward to whisper in his ear. Millions of dollars, he said. Sam's eyes grew wide, and he seriously considered it. But he felt only confusion, not peace, and he rejected the idea. He shook his head slightly. Elder, I strongly suggest you leave the stone with me. I'll ship it to you if you don't want to sell it. That's okay, I'll just take it with me. Mr. Polly was about to say something else, but Sam turned away. He did not see the worried look that crossed Mr. Polly's face. Dawn kissed her father on the cheek. She whispered something quickly and then hurried off with Sam. Their plane was about to leave without them. At the door of the concourse, Sam turned once more to wave and then proceeded on the plane. He, Don, and Elder Palmer had adjacent seats. He took her seat and slid her into his. He wondered if that was against mission rules, but concluded that it didn't matter. Elder Palmer was too excited to care what they did. Almost immediately, the engines began to turn and the steward came back to check their seatbelts. That diamond, 
Don whispered in his ear, is too tr valuable to transport this way. Too many people know that you have it. They, uh, There are those who will kill us both to get it. Believe me, I have done this many times and I know. You should have sold it to Daddy or given him to him to send you to America. We have ways of safely transporting diamonds. This is very risky. Sam nodded. I wasn't sure what to do, and there wasn't time to think. I know. There wasn't time to convince you that Father would deal honorably with you. You should have trusted me. <laughs> Sam thought about this. He was relatively certain it would have taken weeks to convince him to surrender the stone to Don's father, especially when he blamed Sam for leaving, for her joining the church. Even though Mr. Polly had forgiven Don, he would barely talk to Sam. She was right, though. Sam should have trusted her. In fact, he did. At that time, leaving the diamond with Mr. Polly hadn't seemed like an issue of trusting Don or not. What should I do? For now, give it to me. I know exactly what to do. We'll be making a 12-hour layover in England. When I kissed Daddy goodbye, I told him to have our contact in England meet us at the airport. He will come. Believe me when I say that he, that you will not make it back to America with that stone in your possession. Diamond smuggling and diamond theft is a highly developed art in this country. They watch the airport 24 hours a day to spot this exact thing. I can guarantee that someone is on the phone this moment planning how to to relieve you of it before you reach America. I don't expect them to try anything until after we get to England. We'll be safe until then. Our problem will be to get into contact before the thieves get to us. We can do it if we're lucky, she added. <laughs> Sam was worried. I had no idea, he said as he slid the small box into her hand. She transferred it to her purse. I'm sure you didn't. We will all be all right when we reach England. Until we reach England, she said. In a whisper, with a start, he realized she was right. Many people had seen the stone, including sewerages and other people passing by. Naively, they hadn't even attempted to conceal the fact that he had it. Thinking back, he could remember several strangers being particularly impressed with the stone. He had a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach and wished... He were still just doing missionary work. He missed it already, and was dreading the transition back to a normal life. Why is my life always so complicated, he mumbled under his breath. He laid his head back on the seat, and the big plane roared into the sky.